0: The live opinions, descriptions, and accounts expressed on the Best of Times Radio Hour are those of the hosts and the guests of this show, and not necessarily those of Town Square Media or this station. Consult with your attorney, accountant, or other professional for final advice in making your decision. The Best of Times, live from 7:10 Keel Studios in Shreveport, Louisiana, celebrating age and maturity helping you make the best years of your life the best they can be. The Best of Times. Your host, Gary Coligas.
1: Good morning, Architects listeners. I'm Gary Coligas, the publisher of The Best of Times, the only news magazine for mature adults in northwest Louisiana. Thank you for tuning in to our show today. In just a few minutes, we're going to learn more about the tragedy that occurred in Shreveport in January of 1954. So stay tuned for some very interesting information. It is Saturday, June. January the seventeenth, and we are broadcasting our radio show today from the studios of News Radio 710 Keel, a Town Square Media Station here in Shreveport, Louisiana. However, today's show has been pre-recorded, so we will be unable to accept call-in questions and comments from our loyal radio listeners. Be sure to pick up the January issue of the best of times at one of our five hundred and twenty-eight distribution locations. Thanks for the many compliments about our magazine. We do appreciate hearing from you. If you're unable to find a copy, remember to to visit our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com to view current and past issues of The Best of Times. We are working on our 2015 Silver Pages Senior Resource Directory, which will be released on March the 1st. If your business, organization, or agency wishes to be included in our 2015 edition of Silver Pages, please call us at 318-636-5510. Remember to log on to our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com timesnews.com for a listing of announcements made during today's radio show, as well as information about upcoming events, activities, and news that you can use. We'll be right back with more information, but now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Kiel, partly presented by A-Bear, sending country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep
0: dealer. Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you you on 710 Keele. Now, back to the Best of Times with your host, Gary Coligas. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly
1: presented by A-Bears, tending country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer. I'm Gary Coligas. I do thank you for listening to our show today and also thanking those listening via the Internet at www.710keel.com. Joining me on my show today is our two special guests. First, Ernie Robinson, who is a Register of Voters and also a avid historian, but also Mr. Conway Link, who is the president of the Shreveport Historic Preservation Society. And before we talk about the tragedy, let's learn a little bit more about Shreveport's Historic Preservation Society. Good morning, Conway, and thank you for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour.
2: Thank you for having me here. The Shreveport Historic Preservation Society is a 501c3 which um uh, concentrates mainly on downtown area and um, su- surrounding communities such as Allendale and crosstown and why why was it founded? Uh, it was founded uh, probably in the uh, two thousand and four two thousand and five because there were younger people who were uh, noticing the demolition of buildings in downtown was a- increasing at a i wouldn 't say an exponential rate but when you look at what was going on in 1998 and move it forward to about 2004, there were over 50 buildings 50. in downtown Fourth that were demolished.
1: And some of those buildings had had so much history and so much that that some of these even I would call them new imports into Shreveport and Boger City area was like what I didn't know that and and luckily your organization and your society is bringing this to the forefront, the bringing back some of the history of the past, right? Exactly. And the one of the the and this idea spurns to help. LSU fundraiser. It's a it helps in fundraising efforts.
2: Yes, you're talking about the DVD, right? Yes,
1: and that that the proceeds from that is going to fund some scholarship to to an individual student.
2: Well, the scholarship idea uh, got brought up right after um, Eric Brock died, and I think that was probably around Thanksgiving of 2011 or 2012, and so right after, probably within a few hours, I contacted Gary Joyner, about the possibility of having us uh, of us having a, uh, a scholarship established at LSUS S for uh, in the in memory of Eric Brock. well that idea went over, but somehow or other, and I don't know how it happened, but the fact that uh, Street for Historic Preservation Society was involved with it kind of slipped through the cracks so, so so
1: tell so tell me again the this the the relationship with the spring street historical Museum and your
2: society? Well, many of our board members on our Freeport Historic Preservation Society are also board members on other historic preservation groups, for instance, the Red River Valley Railroad Historical Society and Spring right. Street Museum and uh, Freeport Waterworks Museum, etc. Well, in 2011, I was asked to uh, sort of head up a lecture series for 2012 for the Spring Street. Um, uh, Spring Street Lecture Series. I think that probably goes on every other year. And uh, I was kind of stumbling around for what to come up with for as the lecture goes. And my mind sort of drifted back to the late 1980s when there was a lot of us that gathered at Mamma Mia's that talked about <laughs> politics. This was after the, uh, Stan Tyner took over, not, not took over, but he was the uh, person who was designated by Buddy Romer to uh, fill his un, un, uh, unexpired congressional seat. And so a bunch of us met talked to Stan, and uh, after Stan did not win, there were many of us that continued meeting from 1988 until 1994. At that point, I was not aware of the plane crash. And one of the persons that showed up, who became a friend of mine, said that his grandfather had been killed on that plane crash. So after talking to him and then realizing that there were some stories in the Times about uh, the plane crash, and at that time it was called The Plane Crash That Changed Freeport. at least that's the way that I remembered it. Uh, That was in my mind when the lecture series came up in 2011. So I suggested, well, let's have the topic be The Plane Crash That Changed Freeport. I didn't know whether it did or not, and I still don't know whether it did. But so what my part was, I thought, hey, there's Ernie Robertson, a long-time friend of mine, and a former student at LSU-S, I must tell you. And <laughs> he and I had been in contact over historical uh, it, uh, matters. Ernie has a terrific collection of uh, paper memorabilia about Shreveport that He I've, does. Oh, my goodness, he does. So uh, Ernie and I have been in contact for each, with each other for years. If I had a question, couldn't find an answer from anybody else, I'd always take it down to Ernie at um, the, uh, the registrar voters office and he's been very very helpful so I, I asked Ernie I said Ernie we need we need some speakers I said would you be willing to research the the plane crash at Wallace Lake and he said sure so then I got talking to our Elliot Stonecipher uh Elliot was one of our persons that showed up at Mama Mia's back in the 80s and he said yes he would and then somebody asked uh, Mayor Hussey so we had a panel discussion there this is around February of uh, 2012. And it went over very well, I have to tell you. It was uh, very well attended. It was at Eastridge, and there were probably 120 or so people that showed up. And Ernie did the presentation on his historic, um, h- historic findings of the plane crash, and then uh, Elliot talked about the demographics and census data, and um, Mayor Hussey sort of combined the two, and uh, it went from there. Uh, it was recorded. Uh, I think two people had camcorders there. I was one of them, and uh, somebody else had another one. It was very low-tech, <laughs> and uh, we just set a camcorder. I'm sure there were people stepping in front of it and, and all kind of stuff going on, so we didn't get a real good um, real good video. video. But, and it wasn't supposed to be professional. It was just to record for posterity. The uh, ideal was that after the... The panel discussion, which probably Ernie, and, and you may remember, I think it lasted for about an hour, um, that we, it's still a mystery. We don't know. Um, Ernie had one idea, and I think Yelly had another idea. I'm not sure what Mayor Hussey had. But we we still didn't know. So that took care of that. And a year or so later, our Three Historic Preservation Society was looking around for something to do. And I was thinking about Ernie. I had talked to him over the years, continued talking to him about the plane crash. Ernie said he'd collected more data than what he'd presented in the February 2012 um, episode at our event at Easter Ridge. And so that's how Ernie got involved again.
1: And so that led to the DVD, the, to, the, to the lecture series and to the DVD that we're going to talk about is in a minute. So it, what, are, what are some future projects of the Shreveport Historical Preservation Society? Do you, have any, do you have any future investigations that you're going to be doing regarding downtown Shreveport or surrounding Well you? there's
2: there's several there's several groups like I said that we work with. One is the DSDC Downtown Shreveport Development Corporation and a lot of the projects that we had at one time and wanted to see completed have been have been successfully taken over by Liz Swain who is the DDA director. She has found a tremendous number of um, owners uh, for buildings downtown, buildings that have been repurposing, uh, rebuilt, and she's done just incredible work. But there's one building there that I'm very concerned about, and our our group is also, and that's the Arlington Hotel, which in my opinion is kind of a railroad hotel, which sits at the top of, um, uh, I think it's um, Louisiana and, and Cotton Street. Absolutely stunning in its architecture. There's nothing left downtown in Strayport like it. So this is one of the, the focuses that our preservation group has.
1: Well, well, hopefully you're going to do these and other projects. I know many of our listeners might want to recommend some topics for you to investigate. So uh, we will place your uh, your your phone number or if you want to give it to them, or your email address for them to, to give you some suggestions. I have, based upon Ernie's and I's participation in Remember in Shreveport when that took place several years ago, there are some remarkable things that were brought up at this particular uh, 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 event that was held at the Louisiana State Exhibit Museum, including a lot of people did not know the impact of Shreveport and Bossier City area on the glass making, glass cutter, back in the 1930s. And twenties, how prevalent our area was in providing cut glass for buildings throughout the United States that might be something and, and also our bottling companies Uncle Joe and a yep. few other ones that had a tremendous impact providing over a million plus bottles per year to to the to the, to the uh, beer industry that weren't even bottled here uh, they were made here the bottles but they were shipped elsewhere to be packaged with beer uh, before the prohibition so uh, remarkable stories that how this report in city area impacted not just the whole United States but the entire world.
2: Gary, if I may add something else but, um, about downtown Freeport, it's it's been my opinion. I may be the only one in Freeport that thinks this, but there's with the empty buildings that we have, there's an ample opportunity for things to be manufactured in downtown. They don't have to be um, uh, ships or airplanes or <laughs> um, <laughs> automobiles, but you know, mardi gras beads, cotton balls, shoelaces, stuff like that. And there's a need for these things. I I really think that there could be some manufacturing brought down. And
1: there was in prior years. Yes. There was a candy-making factories down there that provided candy for probably half the United States back in the early 1900s, 20s. I was reading, and I knew of some Jewish individuals as well as some Greek ethnic individuals that had these candy-making factories located in downtown Shreveport. So hopefully, you know, your society and others will, will bring that back to life to some of the young people that are in the area and moving into the area. I'm, I know that the late Eric Brock tried to bring up some of these particular items in, in all his various historical books, as well as my, my friend Gary Joyner, who has been doing a fantastic job. And Ernie's collection over there is another remarkable. So hopefully we'll get more and more people uh, documenting this historic uh, influence of our particular area that, that can show and show others throughout the United States and the world that little Shreveport, Bossier City, Louisiana had a tremendous impact back in the days and, and continues to do so. So, thank you. We're gonna we're gonna be right back with more information. But now, a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Kiel, proudly presented by A Bears, Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer.
0: Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Kiel. Back to the Best of Times with your host, Gary Coligas. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly
1: presented by A Bears tending country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer. I'm Gary Coligas. I do thank you for listening to our show today and also thanking those listening via the Internet at www.710keel.com. Today's Best of Time radio show, I've decided that it will take a more serious tone. It will discuss, we're going to be discussing the past tragic and historic event that occurred in the Shreveport area that resulted in the death of 12 men. At 5.50 p.m. on a cold January 10th, 1954, the United Gas Company's Mallard aircraft crashed into Wallace Lake, which was a tragic life. Of all of those on board. There is a recent DVD that's out, sponsored and produced locally, about this particular event, and the proceeds for this DVD will go towards scholarship funds for history majors at LSUS during research in Shreveport history. Today I have on my show as a guest Mr. Ernie Robinson, who made this presentation uh, several weeks ago, and we are going to be discussing this particular tragedy, but we're not going to discuss all the details. We want you to consider purchasing this remarkable historical DVD that that gives you the details about this tragedy and how it has affected the Shreveport and Bossier surrounding area. So, thank you, Ernie, for joining us today here. Thank That's you, Gary, the Times here. Radio Hour. So, so tell us a little bit about, uh, first of all, we understood from Conway how you got involved in this particular project, and you love to do investigative research, definitely, for the Shreveport and Bossier City area, right?
3: Well, I do. I enjoy doing that, and uh, of course, I was co-author with Gary Joyner on Lost Shreveport, right. uh, which actually details uh, the period around the turn of the century of Shreveport, and honest with you, dug up a lot of things that people didn't know or hadn't really uh, dug into. Uh, One was, of course, the beer industry that was in Shreveport and uh, took a deep look into that, as well as the Prohibition vote that very few people knew about 10 years or so before Prohibition started nationally. So, what was that? The Prohibition was voted... It was actually voted in in Shreveport in 1908, which is long before National Prohibition uh, took over about 10 years later. And what we found in that was that throughout the South, there were prohibition votes going on. It would be unusual, though, and I would say Shreveport may have been the only city that voted out uh, uh, alcohol whenever, in fact, at that time we had three major beer houses here, uh, breweries here, including Adolphus Bush was here.
1: Wow, I didn't know Adolphus Bush was here. Right. Had an office here and uh, had a brewery here. Well, we need to talk about that at an an upcoming radio show the best of times. So let's let's talk about the nature of this particular trip that that resulted that caused that the tragedy resulted in.
3: Well, it was actually a yearly trip. Uh, that was yearly, seven, a yearly trip. United Gas uh, would sponsor it, and Mr. McGowan, who was president of United Gas, uh, would round up uh, basically a lot of the civic leaders as well as people who uh, were involved with United Gas. And on this particular trip, uh, we did have Thomas Braniff, uh, who was the president of Braniff Airlines, that had the most uh, Gates and uh, uh, planings, if you want to say, our customers at uh, Love Field as well as at Shreveport, and then we also had somebody on here that I've done a little bit of research into. And his name was Chris Abbott, and he was the wealthiest man in Nebraska. He was the uh, basically the controlling interest in nine banking institutions, as well as uh, uh, several ranches up in that area, and was also involved in a lot of other business, including Original Airline. And so we feel like he came with Mr. Braniff. And of course then our, our local men that were on there, uh, the Quirby's brothers, the Weiss brothers, uh, one of whom lived here, the other one was out of Dallas. And so there, uh, whenever you look at the people who were on the plane, uh, this was basically the who's who, is the way the Shreveport Times would state it in the memorial about it. Uh, these these were the men who had contributed greatly to Shreveport's uh, economic growth, but also had contributed to the charities and. Freeport, and had really been the backbone in many cases of many things, including Centenary College.
1: So, who sent out the invitations and and these gentlemen accepted, so he sent out regularly each year right, 30 every people. Year. but there was a limitation on how many they could right. take on the airplane right Right.
3: Uh, basically we have found uh, uh, there are going to be uh, 10 who are actually going to be on the Grumman Mallard plus the two pilots and then on the Lodestar and that was the second plane that Mr. McGowan flew back on uh, you had Mr. McGowan and you had uh, Walter Jacobs the president of uh, First National Bank you had uh, Mr. Hamrick who was an oil man from out of town and Mr. Wolf who was a local oil man an oil developer and uh, those were the four that were on there, plus the two pilots. There are also two other people uh, that we know of who are mentioned in articles who came back earlier. One of them was Mr. Glassel, who came back earlier uh, and was not on the flight. And then there is also another person who's been brought up to me, and one of the family members called me. I don't care to give his name, but uh, he said his dad was on there. And I asked him a very essential point that only basically somebody on the, on the flight was would know, and he was able to answer uh, that particular point. So there may have been somebody else who may have been on the load star, but his name uh, never appears in any of the public documents, or does it appear in the in the investigative reports? Because uh, they're they're not required back in
1: the fifties to make a manifest, right?
3: Uh, they aren't required to have a manifest, and if somebody basically didn't want to uh, have their name recorded, and this person uh, uh, would definitely have the ability not to have that done, then because uh, these
1: are private, these are private. Privately owned, privately
3: owned planes. So privately owned planes by
1: whom? Whatever private company. I don't. Probably now they do, but back in those days,
3: they were. You just hop on the plane. I mean, well, that's correct. And uh, also. uh, They were uh, the gentlemen who were on the flight. This was not the only duck hunt they would have at uh, Oak Grove Hunting Club uh, or down at Creole, Louisiana. Uh, There would be several during uh, the season, and different groups would go down there. This was the one that, uh, as it was explained to me by people whose grandfathers and fathers went down there, uh, this was the one the United Gas was best known for. And so it was the one that, that basically had all the major players. Uh, in the Streetport economy who could go. And there were people, Gary, as I found out in investigating this, uh, people would come up to me and say, well, my dad was going to go. But in one case, he didn't go because I was sick. Oh. And so, therefore, uh, he didn't go on the flight. And, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those uh, just weird twists of fate. So... The plane went down and spent how long? Well, they flew down on Thursday. Thursday. And uh, they would stay until Sunday morning. They were scheduled to leave uh, Sunday afternoon. They were scheduled to leave at that time. And uh, first of all, uh, the Lodestar, which was a larger plane, is a tail dragger, and it's a World War II plane. It was uh, based the whole time in the Lake Charles Airport. And the amphibious plane, which was the Grumman Mallard, was used to shuttle passengers to and from uh, Creole, Louisiana. And so the first thing they did was they shuttled uh, the four passengers, which would be uh, Jacobs and McGowan, Hamrick and Wolf, back up to the Star and they also took all the guns and put it on there and all the gear that they would take and they were loaded onto the plane there and then uh, the pilots returned back down to Creole to pick up the ten passengers who were still at the hunting club and then they would leave within really just uh, a matter of 30 minutes uh, after the other plane had departed from Lake Charles. And so then both both left to return back. To right. The first of all, uh, the Lodestar landed in Shreveport and landed safely, and then... Uh, but it uh, left earlier. It left a little bit earlier than the other plane, and it was a larger plane, and it did have de-icers, whereas the Grumman-Mallard uh, did not have uh, the type of de-icing equipment that the Lodestar had. Were de-icers it, common in, uh, the in, in the 50s? In larger planes they were as i've been told and i'm not a pilot but as i've been told the type of de-icing equipment that this had was basically a spray of alcohol and you had to kind of know in advance that you were going to hit uh, ice to be able to start using that and uh, i believe it was a continuous type system you had to more or less hand pump i guess and so uh, it didn't really have the thermal deicers that uh, you would have on the other planes Okay. So, so it's uh it's flying back and uh and I hate to go into the complete story at that point, but uh uh but, Mr. So Huston, go,
1: but go back one 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 uh, aspect. I mean some people have told me did they not know the weather?
3: Well, here's what happened. Basically, uh, Mr. The, the Huddleston... The problems in the weather. We're talking... Right. Uh, the Huddleston was the pilot, and uh, Shea Schneider was the uh, co-pilot. And Mr. Huddleston contacted the uh, New Orleans Weather Bureau that morning and received the report uh, at that time. And there is a recorded long-distance call charged to United Gas Company uh, in the investigation. So he did have that report, but it extended to the edge of Shreveport, about 20 miles south of Shreveport, or maybe 30 miles south in that range of the weather. And so uh, he lands, and he's at Lake Charles, and he asks the Lodestar pilot, who's already talked to another United Gas pilot who's in Shreveport at 2 o'clock, and he said, what's the weather like? And basically, Elsie, who was the other pilot, Elsie tells Huddleston, uh, there's a chance that you may be hitting some rough weather, especially uh, icing uh, or at least sleet in the Shreveport area. And he expressed concern at that moment because he didn't really have uh, the de-icing equipment. As he said, I, didn't, I don't have my boots. And so uh, it's at that time that he first hears that he may be hitting some sleet or ice as he gets closer to Shreveport. Gary picks up a second report of that after he takes off from Creole. As he's crossing uh, De Ritter. he talks to the Alexandria Airport and unofficially, the person at the Alexandria Airport gives him the local uh, weather, but also says that some uh, information about the uh, Shreveport weather and he, he the uh, person and Alexandria, being a uh, pilot, uh, mentions that uh, he may hit some ice uh, or sleet whenever he gets to this area. And uh, so it's even at that point... But when, when, when weather
1: reports are given to pilots, I'm not an expert either, do they, don't they tell them that ice is going to be at a certain level and altitude? It's not right. just like ice from 50,000 feet no. to 10,000 right. feet or 5,000 feet.
3: He was flying above that. He was above the clouds at first, uh, over 6,000 feet, and then he's going to uh, be cleared by Shreveport, uh, the Shreveport Airport. to uh, So fly. there could
1: be no ice at
3: 6,000? There's no ice at 6,000. There's God. no ice at 5,000 Whenever they tell him to drop to 5,000. Uh, Gary doesn't encounter ice until he hits the area around 4,000 feet. Now, at that particular time, the Shreveport uh, uh, Tower says they were not aware that there was ice at that time. And that's where there's a little bit of dispute, because one of the people that lands a plane says that he did tell them that there was ice at 4,000 feet. So in, the, uh, in my investigation, looking at the report, Uh, That's a little bit of a conflict there. Uh, Also, the the person in charge of the Weather Bureau at the time of Mr. Cable uh, says that the local weather report, which the tower did have, that the local weather report indicated there might be uh, ice and sleet and weather was progressing as that report said it would. There would be a cold front moving in.
1: Well, um, but one thing about, we're, we're talking, this is not 2014, this is no. 1954. The technology for weather
3: forecasting wasn't that sophisticated back in 1954, was it? Uh, well, it was a little bit better than what we think. Uh, actually, uh, it's not like we see now where we can sit in our house and look at... Uh, they, didn't the and they, didn't they didn't have Doppler radar. They didn't have Doppler radar, no. But they did have, uh, uh, because of World War II, uh, they did have uh, uh, pretty good weather reporting, and they were able to report what they felt like was going to come about with the weather and actually it was progressing about that way according to uh, Mr. Cable uh, at the Weather Bureau and uh, unfortunately uh, it actually winds up being basically a floating ice field up in the air that the Grumman Mallard hits which leads uh, to uh, the tragedy that happens at Wallace Lake.
1: We'll be right back with more information. And now, a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by A Bears Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer.
0: Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Kiel. Now, back to the best of times with your host, Gary Kaligas.
1: Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour, proudly presented by Abers, 10 country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer. I'm Gary Coligas. I do thank you for listening to our show today. Also, thanking those listening via the Internet at www.710keel.com. Joining me on my show today is Mr. Ernie Robinson, who's discussing the tragedy that occurred in 1954 relating to the crash that killed 12 prominent gentlemen uh, from this report and surrounding area, and how this particular. Uh Tragedy affected the Shreveport area. But as you mentioned, Ernie, welcome Ernie again back to the best of time. Thank radio you appreciate it. There were not just reporters on this show. And I, I mean, that's one misnomer that I've heard many people
3: uh, when, I, when I was growing up young. It was 12 reporters died. And there were not all Shreveporters. No, six of the men were from Shreveport. Uh, four were out of town people Thomas Braniff, uh another one, uh, Chris Abbott from uh, Nebraska, who was the wealthiest man in Nebraska, uh, as well as Edgar Tobin. Uh, who was head of the world's largest aerial mapping service involved with the oil and gas uh, business, and he was uh, from San Antonio, and then one of the Weiss brothers uh, from Dallas. And those are the four out-of-towners uh, who uh, were also on the flight, and then the two pilots, Mr. Huddleston and Mr. Shea
1: and and one of these individuals you missed, mentioned Mr. Tobin was an ace
3: pilot. Ace pilot in World War 1, World War 1. And he was they say the first ace pilot from San Antonio because so many pilots were trained there. Wow.
1: What what a, what a remarkable. Some of these people were, were very, as you said, very prominent. Of course, the, the the person that owned the nine banks in Nebraska and one in South Dakota. And we
3: really don't know his role in this. He, he became kind of a, a side focus for me trying to figure out who Chris Abbott was. And I, I still believe, and I've received some informal information, that he and Mr. Branis Uh, basically uh, Mr. Braniff wanted to be on the trip and wanted him on the trip and that's informal but uh, there's also a comment made to me for the person who's not listed on the manifest let's say uh, that he specifically swapped seats off of the Grumman Mallard so Mr. Braniff could get on the Mallard with Mr. Abbott so I really believe since Mr. Abbott was basically a financier uh, in many ways the Possibly Mr. Braniff was looking at uh, some role for Mr. Abbott maybe financing some of his business. Uh, Already joining general. forces with this, his little regional airline that regional was in, airline. Then in Oklahoma
1: that uh, right. ran up keep, uh, kept acquiring uh, probably other little smaller airlines That's to right. increase their fleet. and, and uh,
3: So we don't know his role, but we do know he was by far uh, one of the major players and he was invited on this by Mr. McGowan for some reason probably at the behest of Mr. Braniff.
1: And of course, our friends in the Dallas Fort Worth area are very familiar with this particular tragedy because of Mr. Braniff and his sure. real and is the head- headquarters of British Airlines, which was in Dallas, Texas, right?
3: That's true. And they had the most gates, uh, basically, uh, at Love Field at that time. Delta was not the force that it was, uh, nor was it the force here in Shreveport that it was. Braniff was the number one, uh, basically, airline in both markets. So continuing on to this
1: tragedy, by the way, that's before we um, close the show, we need to mention that this is available on a detailed uh, presentation by Ernie on a DVD that's available for purchase. It's $20, if I recall, $20 available. It's a remarkable historic DVD for yourself or to, to share with your family members. It gives the g- tremendous details about this tragedy and all the all the participants and all the, the sad individuals who lost their lives, and also the historical facts about that. It is available, uh, and again, proceeds going toward the LSU Scholarship Fund. You can call 424-5508, or you can go by Fertitas, uh, Delhi on eleven twenty four Fairfield in Shreveport to pick up pick up your own individual copy of this particular DVD. You can also go to the dot com website if you have not if you want to get more information about this DVD and uh, and its location. So, in continuing um, a little snippet of this particular DVD because we could be here for three hours, couldn't we, <laughs> uh, of course. uh so, so they've got the weather forecast um uh, the pilot and, him and there was a co pilot too, right? Co pilot. Mm-hmm. Because there were not, uh, these planes couldn't just fly by one person,
3: right? That's right. And uh, uh, this plane, uh, just so I'll mention, this was uh, uh, in the investigation, this plane was in perfect working order. That wasn't uh, the question. The question came down to uh, basically at what point did they hit the ice field, and that's on the DVD, and then what happened at that time. And that was recorded, uh, Gary, uh, by photos by Langston McKee of the crash site, as well as an incredible uh, collection of photos by J. Frank McEnany that I had uh, the opportunity to work with uh, Terry Adwood and uh, Don Weagle on seeing those photos on site where the crash took place. And you can uh, literally think it was a 360 degree view that uh, uh, that McEnany did, as well as Jack Barham. And all that pieced together, uh, to put together that basically after he hit the uh, ice field, uh, as one person, Uh, one pilot explained it to me you're basically in a glider uh, without controls. And I won't go into the entire uh, presentation after then, but I will say that uh, given what he had I think uh, Mr. Huddleston did the best that he could but it really was a glider without controls.
1: Okay, but one question I had from one of my um, readers the best of times who picked up an advance copy and asked me did the plane actually crash into Wallace Lake? The lake lake? Right?
3: It actually crashed right on the shore uh, of Wallace Lake uh, near a fishing camp, and uh, came down and came down at a steep descent rate, and went straight down and basically lost an engine and got knocked off by one of the trees, which turned it to its left, and then it went and hit a fishing camp from there, and that's where it burst into flame. It was actually on land whenever the plane actually burst into flame though parts of it were in the water and I believe uh, sincerely that he was trying to do the best he could to make an amphibious landing because he never declared an emergency
1: he never declared an
3: emergency no he never declared an emergency he said he was going in and so I believe he was trying to do his best uh, with what he had uh, to make a landing on the water and at that time not now at that time, looking at Jay Frying McEnany's photos, it would have been possible. Because there were not as much trees. There weren't as many trees in that particular pocket. And, that and particular the water was quite deep in that area. Was deep back in the 50s. It had. There must have been a lot of rain during that time because it had back flooded, and uh, there was a lot of water there, uh, more so than what you wind up with say so, when you go out there in June or some other time.
1: So, so the the, the, the steepness of the descent caused him not to be able to control the plane to go into the water. Probably. I believe so. That's probably. I mean, but uh, the, the the reader who said, "Why do we call it the tre- the, the lake crashing in the lake?" And this individual no. was saying, "You know, it's I'm, right at the edge I, of the lake." I didn't know how to answer that when I said, "Oh, I'll ask the expert today." Sure. I mean, right at the edge, of it. right at the edge. But that's that's the way that the description of it. it's near near uh, the lake, but not actually crashing into the water. It was cra- it it, uh, it sadly clipped a large tree, probably.
3: That's right? exactly what happened.
1: And um, and so
3: how fast did the local authorities and people, there, wasn't there a witness nearby? Uh, there were actually uh, four witnesses to it. One was a Mr. Rucker uh, who jumps in a uh, boat and goes around the edge of the pocket to see if there's anything he can do to help. And he's the one who winds up calling. Uh, uh, for assistance, and then there were three more. Uh, two of them were named Martinez. They and had phone service out in that room Not in that area. Who he had to it? drive up to Forbing. Oh, I was going to gonna phone say. Hole. He had to drive up to Forbing, so there was some delay, but the plane burst into flames immediately, and basically from the reports throughout the investigation, uh, he just said he knew immediately there was no way to help them, nor would there probably be any survivors, so uh, he went to Forbing and called, and actually... Uh, Channel 12 had just gone on the air that week. This was their first week on the air. And so they're trying to send somebody down there, as well as the newspaper people. Langston McKeechen uh, gets there really before uh, the uh, uh, the emergency personnel. But the Cattle uh, uh, Pair Sheriff's Office shows up uh, quickly. And then um, uh, finally, the Barksdale Air Force Base uh, uh, folks are called, and they send in a crew to actually extinguish the flames. Barksdale had to come to extinguish the Barksdale was the one that actually came in to extinguish the I flames.
1: I didn't remember that on your presentation, wow! So they were contributing in the factor, mm-hmm. um, and 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 going back to the fact that. You know, we don't know all the t- tremendous impact that that the, these the death of these individuals had, but it it did have a bearing on the community. I mean, we were it was it made headlines. It was it was a sad day. It, in it, the really, day.
3: Was. it but, really was. It really was. I think the Streetport Journal, uh, you know, called it an incalculable loss and uh, spoke as well as did the Times spoke as to the uh, the efforts by the men who were involved that they they literally were the who's who of Streetport at that time and uh, also. Uh, the, we sometimes have a hard time measuring what it did to the everyday folks and that's who I center in a lot in my writing because I grew up with this story uh, as a little kid out on uh, Queens Highway and that's where the DVD starts is the legends that I grew up with and one of them was this one the other one was a 1940 tornado and uh, this story was always in my psyche and I had absolutely not much information at all except that the people in those neighborhoods neighborhoods felt like it affected Shreveport deeply. So, and I heard that all my life. My parents had just moved to Shreveport in 1954
1: from Tyler, Texas, so they, they were they were very they were very familiar with it because uh, no, actually 1953 they were here, and uh, so they were very familiar with this. And when I joined Texas Easter, and I got a little bit familiar with, but I did not know the rest of the story like you're telling us now. So again, the DVD is is available as I, I, I mentioned for twenty dollars, and the proceeds goes to the LSU uh, Scholarship Foundation. It's available by calling 424-5508 or you can visit Fortita's Deli located at 1124 Fairfield Avenue in Shreveport to pick up your personal copy of this DBT and the extensive presentation and research by Ernie Robinson here today. Thank you Ernie for joining, Thank us, you today. Gary, for to joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. Love having you on my show again. Looking forward to having you on a future show. Thank you. We'll be right back with more information but now, at work from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible, you're listening to the Best of Times radio hour here on News Radio 710 Kiel, probably presented by A-Bear's Sunny Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer.
0: Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Kiel. Now, Back to the best of times with your host, Gary Kaligas.
1: Welcome back to our show, The Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel. Thank you again for listening to our show today. Please join us next Saturday for another show that can benefit you or your loved ones. Don't forget to pick up your personal copy of the best of times at one of our five hundred and twenty-eight distribution locations. May God bless you and your family. God bless America. Have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you again for listening to our show today. I'm Gary Coligas, wishing You and yours, the best of times, both today and every day. Have a great day.
0: You've been listening to the best of times on 710 Keel. Join us again next Saturday at 9 for the best of times. This is News Radio 710 Keel, K E E L, Shreveport Mosier.